Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato or Dostoevsky or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks, as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the Wisdom of. Coming up today, the top philosophy quotes of all time. I had this idea for something I wanted to call the the wheel of predictability, something that I could spin and it would land on various outcomes like, a, you know, like the wheel of fortune, basically. But instead of cash or prizes, you know, there's just mine is only going to be cut into two distinct halves, only two outcomes possible. And they are both the topics, the references that I can't stop going at, Norm MacDonald and The Sopranos. But that's the kind of ingenious twist to my little wheel of predictability. It's going to give some level of randomness to my boring self. Like, there are only two choices, two outcomes, but hey, who knows which one you're going to get. So I constructed this, this you know massive spinning wheel like a classic game show wheel. It's spectacular, but it's gigantic. And in retrospect, I have no clue why I made it so big. I really, at this point, don't have room for a bed anymore, so I'm sleeping on the wheel. It has a circumference of almost three meters. Uh, For American listeners out there, that's about, I think, 987 cubits or whatever ancient unit of measurement you're still using. But long story, slightly less long, I can't spin it in front of you. It's, you know, audio format and all that. But bigger problem, it wouldn't fit on the bus that I take to get here. So I spun it at home, listeners, and you'll just have to trust me, it landed on The Sopranos. So, as Vito Spadafore famously said, what are the top philosophical quotes for this podcast episode of The Wisdom Of? Wow, yeah, that was, um, long. And uh, Vito Spadafore? Another lost reference for me. But anyway, who really cares about any of what was just uh, said here, right? So um, let's just get down to the task at hand. Okay, so today we're going to take a look at two more pretty famous philosophical quotes. So the first one goes like this. Hell is other people. 
and it comes from the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. And we get the second one from uh, Nietzsche, who wrote, Without music, life would be a mistake. Actor uh, Tony Sirico passed away relatively recently. I'm assuming a lot of you don't know the name. In fact, your dumb, dumb narrator here isn't even sure if he's pronouncing his name correctly. But many people might know him better as Polly Walnuts, the character that he played on The Sopranos that, as far as I can tell, has a near universal approval rating. If I was around for the last episode, the Dante episode, I would have totally liberally quoted from Polly's speech on purgatory. He's talking to Christopher, and really he's conveying how him, this gangster murderer, is just not going to go to hell. He's going to purgatory. Now, he'll be there for like 7,000 years or something, but in the afterlife, that's nothing. He can do that standing on his head. But that's neither here nor there. Maybe you can splice that into last week's episode. But for today's episode, we get hell is other people. That makes me think of a time when Tony, uh, Tony Soprano, had to go on the run and he had to go with Polly. And all of Polly's tics, habits, and general annoying behavior just rose up to the fore to the point, uh, along with some, I don't know, brewing resentment that Tony had. But really, it felt like it was the stammering and all the annoying stories. They all built up and it pushed Tony to think about in the parlance of the show, whacking Polly. So for Tony, at least, hell was one person. Yeah, you'd think that uh, one person would be bad enough, right? But uh, no, not according to Sartre. According to him, hell is any and all people we come across. To be more specific, hell, he says, is other people. Okay, so maybe the best place to begin with this is to go to Sartre's famous play, no exit. So the play essentially begins with three people who find themselves in a room with a sofa, and they all know that they're dead and that they've been sent here to hell. Now, the strange thing they notice about this, though, is that there are no fires, there's no devil, and there are no torture instruments or gnashing of teeth. All it is, is three people locked inside a plain room. So, how exactly then is this hell? Well, of course the answer for Sartre is that hell is other people. In the case of No Exit, the confinement of the characters, of course, extends beyond their physical room. They're not just trapped physically. But worse, they're trapped by the judgments of the others. That's why Sartre has one of the characters say hell is other people because of how we're unable to escape the, the watchful gaze of everyone around us, because of how we're trapped within them, subject to their apprehension of us. Okay, but um, you know what, let's back up a bit and get into some more detail here, because it's uh, really fascinating stuff. So, according to Sartre, when we're completely alone or isolated, we don't really possess a, um, a stable kernel or a stable identity to which our acts can be referred. 
No, actually, we don't come to have a personal identity or a sense of self until we're looked at by someone else. That's to say, when I'm seen by another person, my body all of a sudden becomes an object in the world. It becomes an object for the gaze of another. So, when I'm looked at, I acquire a body and even a, a personality all of which is more accessible to the one looking at me than it is to myself. In a very real sense, then, it's only through others looking at me that I'll learn who I am. I mean, think about it. You can't be handsome or, or intelligent or, or funny except for others, right? I mean, how could you be funny if no one was around to perceive you that way? So the way that Satra puts all of this is to say that who I am, my being, is really, at the end of the day, a being for others. I am my being for others. Okay, but now for Satra, all of this is uh, very problematic, to say the least. So I said that when I'm seen by another person, my body becomes an object, right? Well, it's even worse than this, because basically, I become an object. You see, before I was looked at by someone else, I was a kind of pure freedom, uh, a pure subjectivity, as Sartre sometimes calls it. That's to say, I wasn't fixed or labeled in any way. No, I was fluid. I was whatever I wanted to be next. I had this power to always be able to transcend myself and my situation. But now, having been looked at, I've been objectified. I am how I'm being perceived. And so my freedom's been taken away from me. As Sartre puts it, I have become a transcendence transcended. In other words, my freedom is now an object for somebody else. I have been reduced from being pure freedom to a mere thing in the world. Okay, but let me expand a bit more on this idea of being reduced to an object by another's gaze. Because um, it's important, and I think it's ultimately why Sartre thinks that, well, hell is other people. So, what's really problematic here for Sartre is that when we're looked at by another, that's to say, when we're objectified by another, then we become a fixed and therefore a predictable being like any other thing out there in the world that we can calculate and predict and manipulate. This is the degradation of the pure freedom we used to be to a mere thing, to a forever rigid and determinate object. Okay, but now, here's the thing. No one likes to be objectified in this way. No one likes having their freedom taken away from them. We don't want to become an object within someone else's world. We don't want to have our identity fixed by others. We don't want to be turned to stone by the Medusa's stare. So, what do we do about this then? Well, Sartre says that what we inevitably do is we look back at the person who looks at us. That's to say, having been a transcendence transcended, I now transcend their transcendence in turn. In other words, I unleash my freedom and make my objectifier my object. 
I reduce them to a thing just like they did to me and thereby reinstate my own freedom. Now, according to Sartre, there's just no way of getting around it. All human relationships are characterized in this sinister, conflict-ridden way. In other words, all relationships consist of this back and forth of looking at and being looked at, of objectifying and being objectified in turn. And um, this is why, in the hell of the play No Exit, there is no physical torture. No, there's no need for it. And that's because people will torture each other just by being together in the same room. And this is why hell is other people. Uh, without music, life would be a mistake. I can't really speak to this thing that you and this Nietzsche fellow are calling life. But I can say that The Sopranos without music would be a total mistake. Think about just like the famous slash infamous last scene. Would Meadows' inability to parallel park... Okay, hold on. I just, I think I just got it. Here's the thing, boys and girls. Meadow, she doesn't fit in with the rest of the family. Ah, okay, visual storytelling there. Okay, but never mind, digression. Back to the awful parking. Would her awful parking have had such gravitas without the journey song, the don't stop believing aspect to it? Like, if we switch into the diner, it was already the most beautifully acted, absolutely stress-inducing, intense onion ring commercial I'd ever seen. But add in the song, it just pushed it over the top. So if music can do something this good for something as important as a TV show, surely it can do something for life. Um, without music, The Sopranos would be a mistake. I like it. But it doesn't quite have the power of Nietzsche's quote, does it? So, as you mentioned, what he said was, without music, life would be a mistake. So, what does he mean by this? Well, I should say at the outset that Nietzsche writes this. Actually, there are a few versions of it. But he writes it without a, without a whole lot of context. So, what he exactly means by it seems to involve some interpretation. Oh, and um, actually, before I get going, it's kind of interesting. So Nietzsche actually was a bit of a musician himself. But as to how good his compositions were, well, that seems to have been up for some debate. I mean, for example, there's one story that's told where Nietzsche sent a birthday gift of a piano composition to the wife of his friend, the great musician Richard Wagner. Now, Apparently what happened is that when she played the piece in public, Wagner left before she had finished, and then one of the guests found him rolling around on the floor, laughing his head off. That's gotta hurt. Anyway, okay, that said, I don't know, maybe the best way to begin with the meaning of this quote is to, well, to compare music to language or to words. You see, so first of all, for Nietzsche, Language is associated with, well, awareness or consciousness. Words express what we know consciously. I mean, language, he says, comes later in our development, and it's through it that our consciousness arose. 
So there's something very conscious heavy about language. Okay, now the problem with this for Nietzsche is that words, therefore, are limiting. I mean, of course, they're instrumental in many ways, but ultimately what they fail to do is to disclose the deepest things about us or about the nature of being that isn't at the level of consciousness. So, in other words, language, though important, is only in superficial contact with things. And so, it only expresses the superficial. Okay, well, now, music's not like this at all. No, according to Nietzsche, music, because it works without the the mediation of language, it goes directly to the heart of things. It discloses the innermost heart of being. It expresses the ground of being that underlies all existence, most importantly conscious existence. Music, then, has a revelatory power that language or words simply cannot have. Okay, but you're probably thinking, what exactly does music reveal that's so important? And so why would not having music make life a mistake? Well, the quick answer is that music, for Nietzsche, has the power to take us out of ourselves and so to allow us to see the world in a different way, ultimately in a joyous, life-affirming way. But that's too quick, so let's get into some more detail here. So what Nietzsche does is he links music to the god Dionysus. Music, in other words, was the Dionysian art. Now, who was Dionysus? Well, Dionysus was the god of wine and intoxication and emotion. He was the god of letting go and of submersion in the larger life force that is nature. Well, only music has the power to fully communicate the Dionysian. So the idea is that when we listen to or experience or undergo music, What happens is that we forget all that's individual about us and instead feel a sense of oneness with humanity and with nature. We merge into or become part of the more primordial and unconscious life force that drives the world. Okay, now you might be wondering, in what way is this beneficial? Well, Nietzsche thinks that this recognition of our union through music with the rest of biological and natural being, is absolutely crucial if we want to overcome despair about life. That is, Nietzsche believes that we can overcome despair in the face of suffering and human mortality by recognizing, again through music, that we belong to this larger whole, this larger life force that will survive our death. In other words, music conveys the Dionysian wisdom that individual existence is joyous and powerful because ultimately it's grounded in the basic unity of everything that lives. When we discover that our individual existence is not divorced from the rest of reality like this, this should evoke a mood of celebration, Nietzsche thinks. Music, then, is not just a way of overcoming the tragedy and the suffering of life, but a total affirmation of it. And this is why without any music, life would be a mistake. 
to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode seat